Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. On uh, June 19, 1997, the New York Times reported the following. The Southern Baptist Convention called for a boycott of the Walt Disney Company today to protest that the creators of Mickey Mouse and an animated Snow White have gone astray, profiting from a liberated Ellen and offering health benefits to employees' homosexual partners reinforcing an initially proposed boycott of only the company's theme parks and stores, the 12,000 delegates here voted to shun the entire Disney empire, including movie studios, cable television channels, book publishers, trade magazines, newspapers, television, radio stations, and the ABC network. You know, it's estimated that the Disney Corporation today is worth somewhere around $140 billion. That's everything from ESPN and Hulu and Disney Parks and Disney Resorts and ABC on, uh, on network television. There's a lot under that single entertainment conglomerate. I'm not 100% certain that the infamous Baptist boycott actually did much to harm the entertainment giant. They're still producing content that we find to have some objectionable material, and guess what? We're still consuming it like crazy. The problem with organized boycotts, it's pretty simple. They don't solve the problem. They make the news and people talk about it, but they don't really get to the heart of the issue. Rare is the company that has changed its policies over that kind of a boycott. And the reason for this is actually quite simple. God's plan to change the world. It's not through political pressure or financial incentive. God's plan to change the world is through hearts and minds as they hear and receive the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be a place for political pressure and financial pressure, particularly in today's global global situation. But when it comes to changing hearts and minds, It is the gospel. It is the gospel alone in which that takes place. Our time in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, it actually shows us the real way to change the world. Not through pressure, not through politics, but simply one heart at a time. If you got your Bible today, we're going to be in the book of Acts again, Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, we'll start here around verse 21. We'll be covering all the way through about verse 40. But uh, but we want to to start here at verse 21. I would invite you to stand with me as as I read these words from Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. He gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business... We have 
our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Father, I thank you for your words here. I thank you, Lord, for a, a mirror into our own world today. I ask God that you would guide this conversation and that you would help us to see ourselves here and see the world in which we live. May we be passionate men and women, passionate for the hearts of the lost, passionate to see them confronted with the gospel, and passionate to see a culture change one life at a time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, for the last two weeks, we have watched as Paul's time in Ephesus has really done remarkable things. Members of the occult were getting saved. These were witches and wizards. It was like revival was starting at Hogwarts in Ephesus. That's what it seemed like. They were so radically transformed that they were burning their, their spell books. And books were incredibly valuable. It wasn't like there was a, uh, you know, a used bookstore that they could go get these things. These things, these things had, had costs associated with them. Very valuable. And to, to see these things go up in smoke must have been just a powerful sight for this young church. And so Paul here, we're told, he's making his travel plans. He's, he's ready to go back to Jerusalem. As we get close to the end of the book of Acts, we know that his time in Jerusalem is, is certainly challenging. But as he's working this out, the, the situation in Ephesus takes a, takes a very serious turn. Luke gives us a hint in verse 23. He says, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. You see, the church in Ephesus wasn't doing anything wrong. They were doing exactly that which they were supposed to do. They were sharing the gospel, and they were watching the fruit of the gospel, because that's what we expect. We sow gospel seeds, we expect to see gospel fruit. That's, that's what we expect as the church. That's been God's pattern throughout history. You sow gospel seeds, you reap gospel fruit. The catch is, when you start to see enough fruit in a community, you're going to eventually start to see that community change. Back in our own history, there was a time where, where upstate New York was called the Burned Over District because revival fires had swept through there so much that so many people had heard the gospel and so many people had responded that it was believed that there was no one left to preach to. There was no one left to share the gospel to because so many people had heard and responded to it. It should not surprise us, though, when we see people who are profiting from the darkness. They're never really very happy when the lights begin to turn on. See, the reality is this. 
The church's gospel witness should always disturb the darkness. We're told about a man in Ephesus, a guy by the name of Demetrius. And he was a craftsman. He was, a, he was an artist. He, he was skilled with his hands. He was a, some sort of a metal worker. And he made figures like this one. We've actually, archaeologists have actually found these sort of figures. This was unearthed in, in Ephesus at roughly the time that uh, slightly before Paul was there in the church at Ephesus. And so this is very much what Demetrius may have been making or something along those lines. Uh, so he was a craftsman, but more than a craftsman, you guys will appreciate this term, he was a community organizer. It turns out that he made a very good living profiting off the Ephesian religious tourism industry. But don't let that sound too holy. Ephesus was the home to the temple of, of Artemis. And Artemis was the Greek goddess of wild animals and hunting. And all the rednecks say, yeah, right? I mean, this is who you pay homage to before you go hit the deer stand in October, right? You, you offer a little homage to Artemis because she's the goddess of wild animals and hunting. You want to nab that big buck? We'll pay you a little tribute to Artemis. In Ephesus, they had an annual festival to celebrate her. The festival can, it featured all kinds of athletic competition. I imagine there may have been target practice, archery or something like that. But along with that, there was drunkenness and carousing. And of course, as all these ancient religious festivals frequently contain, there was gross and rampant religious prostitution. Because how else do you celebrate a pagan god? One historian described it this way. He said, it was the festival of Artemis, and every place was full of drunken men, and all the marketplace was full of a multitude of men through the whole night. It sounds like a great, great vacation spot. Well, it isn't hard to recognize that Demetrius... He wasn't worried about her reputation as the goddess of wild animals. He's worried about his bottom line. And this powerful young church in Ephesus was picking off customers one at a time. So he got together a group of folks who shared that common grievance, a, a group of folks who, who had lost that sense of revenue. A group of guys that recognized that this new movement in Ephesus that was known in Ephesus as the way, that this new movement was cutting into their, their bottom line, their profit margin. And so what do you do when you're not getting your way and the profit margin's being affected and you're frustrated? Well, you do what you do. You start a riot. And that's exactly what happened. You see, if the church in Ephesus were simply working to coexist with the culture, then none of these issues would have ever happened. There'd be no riots, there'd be no irritation, there'd be no frustration. You'd have the church and you'd have it working alongside of the Artemis cult, and there'd never be any problems. But the church in Ephesus had to be serious. They realized that, that their commission was not just to be the church of the few, the church of the chosen. They realized that their commission was to reach into the darkness, to reach into the Artemis worship, to reach into the places where, where evil things were happening and say, this is what God says. This is the way. This is the way you should walk in it. They took it seriously. And as a result, there were real and profound conversions taking place. We've already seen some of them. But listen, this is how it's supposed to work, right? This is what our expectation is, right? This is what's supposed to happen. It should not surprise us. In fact, it ought to surprise us that we don't see it happening more. We think about this text when it comes to marriage, but I think the principles 
it contains apply beyond marriage as well. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we read these words, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Pastors read this and say, well, you're not supposed to marry believers and non-believers together. But we see that the principle here is, is much bigger. You see, we as the church understand something. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And our gospel witness should constantly be pushing back against darkness. However, we must understand that when we push on darkness, we cannot expect it to go quietly. It does want to push back. In Ephesus, these hostile forces, we see them. They're motivated by money. They're motivated by profit. They're motivated by their, by their customer base. And we understand today, you know, there's still, a lot of, there's still a lot of money floating around in the dark economy today. For example, the pornography industry alone is worth over $100 billion. That's all forms. Forbes reported last year, listen to this, legal marijuana sales reached $17.5 billion. I don't know, have y'all noticed more and more that, that as you're out and about, you smell marijuana more and more now than you did 10 years ago? I mean, it's, it's everywhere. You can't drive down the road and not, and not smell somebody smoke it in their car. That's legal marijuana. It's legal in I don't know how many states now. It's estimated that illegal marijuana sales are close to $100 billion dollars. There's money to be made. There's money to be lost. But I think we need to acknowledge something today. That some of the biggest challenges we face today are not actually motivated by money, but they get to an even deeper place within the human heart. Because what we're seeing today are people who are challenged in their identity and in their purpose. We're witnessing a, a generation where, where there are genuine questions that get into the very philosophy of being in personhood. Who am I? Who am I supposed to be? Who do I identify as? Money is always in the background, but we're living in the advent of a new world where there are legitimately different notions of truth. The gospel speaks to this but in order for the gospel to speak to this, we actually have to speak the gospel. Because the gospel forces people to deal with competing truth claims. The gospel requires that we deal with competing truth claims. Demetrius, the silversmith here, he is a master salesman. He painted a picture that none of these craftsmen could tolerate. In Acts chapter 19, verse 26, he says, Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see, Demetrius did something that we honestly see happen quite a bit today. He went after the God and country approach, right? Because they were affecting their God, and the effect that the God would have would affect their country. And so what we see happening here is a pagan patriotic riot, 
They're, they're, they're so geared towards this deity that they believed was ruler over their city that this became a flag-waving riot. This gospel was a true threat to their identity. At least that's the sales pitch Demetrius gave them. Now, there's no doubt Paul probably said this at some point in time. He said things like this in other places. He told the church in Corinth that the idols that they worshiped weren't really gods at all. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, Paul said that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. He goes on in chapter 10 to, to strengthen that argument. He says in uh, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 10, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, he says. I imply that what pagans sacrifice to, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. What Paul is saying is that that temple up on the hill over Ephesus where everybody bows down to Artemis, Artemis is not a real God. Artemis is a false God. Artemis is a demon. Well, that cuts into the sales considerably. Now, Demetrius isn't wrong in what he's saying. Nor is he wrong in the consequences of Paul's teaching. If more people reject Artemis, then the cult of Artemis will be affected. The temple of Artemis will lose significance. Their business will be harmed. Some might even close. In order to maintain their bottom line, then they have to maintain this claim to truth. That Artemis is the goddess of Ephesus, and that she is the goddess of hunting, and that every year there's going to be a party, and we're going to get all kinds of men in here, and we're going to get them drunk, and they're going to do all kinds of debaucherous, godless things, all in the name of worshiping their great God and Savior, Artemis of the Ephesians. That was their truth claim. And Demetrius was prepared to defend that claim to truth. The Apostle Paul, though, and the gospel have a different truth claim, a different claim of authority, a different claim of truth. And the claim of truth was this, idols aren't real gods. That was their truth claim. Hey, that, that temple you got up there, that's a demon's temple. That's not really worth your worship. That's false. That's fake. That's a lie. That's not true. Here's the truth claim that Paul is making. And then Paul would go on. He says, let me introduce you to the true and living God. It's the same thing he did in Athens. You guys have got lots of idols. You only got one right <laughs> to an unknown God. This will be controversial. It is controversial in this day and time, but I make it with complete confidence that it is true. The gospel cannot peaceably coexist between these competing claims of truth. It cannot coexist. Today, truth claims aren't about bowing a knee at an altar of a Greek goddess. Instead, those claims today are about bowing a knee at the altar of self. Worshiping at the altar of self means that you define your own pathway of truth no matter how it bends and contorts objective reality. And if you want to be a good citizen, you have to celebrate someone who is liberated from whatever restraints have been put on them by whoever is oppressing them. That's today's claim. And just like Demetrius saw that Paul and his message were a danger to his trade. 
The power brokers of today's culture very much see that the Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church is a danger to whatever ideology they're fired up about today. The gospel declares this profound truth. You ready? Human beings are fatally sinful. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Human beings are fatally sinful. I remember before I gave my life to Christ when I was 12 years old, my trajectory in my life was taking me straight to hell. I was fatally sinful by nature and by choice. Here's another truth claim the gospel makes. Human beings love darkness more than they love light. That's our natural course. That's our natural trajectory. We're drawn towards the darkness more than to the light. I heard somebody say the other day that if you're going to go to hell, go to hell on a bar stool, not a church pew. Because we're drawn towards the darkness. And the primary oppressor that we human beings need rescued from is not some straw man representation of whatever traditional value we happen to be rebelling against, but human beings need to be rescued from the oppression of sin. And the gospel declares... That we are set free from that oppressor by acknowledging that we are sinful by nature and choice. That there is a God in heaven who loves each and every one of us so much that he's willing to give his very own son to pay the penalty for our sins that we might know everlasting life. We are still dealing with competing truth claims. In Ephesus, here's the claim. Is Artemis God? Or is Jesus? Choose. Is Artemis God or is Jesus? If Artemis is God, go that pathway. If Jesus is God, then change the path you're on. you got to choose. You can't choose both. In America, are you God or is Jesus? Are you God or is Jesus? And how those questions get answered will determine what life looks like for each of us going forward. Let's be clear. It is much easier and far more convenient for you to be God. Because if you are God, then you get to define what is right and what is wrong because no one can tell you otherwise. If you are God, then you get to choose your own pathway. And if your pathway is radical enough, you'll eventually be celebrated as a hero for blazing such a courageous trail. But if Jesus is God, you surrender yourself to him, his authority, his rule, his claims, you surrender yourself to him. But let's be very clear. A surrendered life to Jesus will not get you celebrated today. A surrendered life to Jesus will not give you praise and accolades. A surrendered life to Jesus will not give you that position of authority. A surrendered life to Jesus will not get you appointed to that team or that body or that group. It will not happen as a consequence of your surrendered life to Jesus. Now, you say, Pastor, I don't see that in this world in which I live. I don't see that in my workplace. I don't see that in my school. In our little corner of the world, it may not be too radical. But give it time, and that surrendered life to Jesus will eventually make you stand out like a sore thumb because you don't look like 
the rest of the world. When you have to start saying things like this, you know what, I can't go see that movie. Or, I really can't eat at that restaurant. Or, I can't watch that sporting event. Or how about this? My kids can't play on that team. Or, here's one. My kids can't go to that spend-the-night party. Or, I can't go to that amusement park. I'm not suggesting the church engage in those boycotts. But I am suggesting that as individual believers and families, we have to start asking very hard questions in this age where there are serious competing claims to truth. Who is God? Is it Jesus or Artemis? Who is God? Is it Jesus or is it me? It's a question that has to be answered. Well, this mob in Ephesus turns violent pretty quickly. We're told that they drug a couple of Paul's companions into the theater where the riot was, was fomenting. Maybe they had plans to humiliate him. Maybe they, maybe they had plans to, to kill him. We know Paul wanted to go in, and I, I love this courage. Let me go in there and talk to him. Dude, they're ready to crucify you. You want to go in there? Let me go in and talk to him. And his friends convince him otherwise. Verse 32 is very interesting. You can spend a lot of time chewing on verse 32. It says that some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. Because that's how darkness works. It's not clear. It's not concise. It's, it's even within itself, it's competing against itself. These folks simply wanted to join the crowd. And all that serves as a reminder of something that we, we frequently lose sight of. It should not surprise us when a lost world behaves like a lost world. Shouldn't be shocking to us. We see this all the time. We see news reports of people doing crazy, godless things. And we say, man, where, what, is this, what is this that we're in? We're in the world. And so it shouldn't shock us when we see that happen because the reality is, is, is sinners going to sin. It is in their nature. You know, we remember the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, you know. We remember those and we strive to live by those, but I've not met many Baptists who go back a couple of verses to, remember, to memorize the verses that come before the fruits of the Spirit. Because before the fruits of the Spirit, Paul gives us the works of the flesh. And it's not nearly as comforting. He says in Galatians 5, 19, the works of the flesh are evident, meaning it's clear, it's obvious. If these things are happening, you're not in the Spirit, you're in the flesh. He goes on, sexual immorality. That's anything and everything outside of heterosexual, monogamous sex inside of marriage. That's what that word means. Anything else. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and stuff like that. I love Paul. Just in case I left anything out, anything that looks remotely like this is works of the flesh. Stuff that looks like that. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when we see this behavior on display, we can say, oh, sinner's going to sin. 
That's what it ought to look like. That's how the world is designed. That's what we are bent towards. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is what the human heart needs delivered from. That list is the default posture of a lost and dying world. And as the church's influence diminishes, the works of the flesh are given more room to flourish. Even as we look around today, if you're a Christian, you're unsettled at what you see. You're concerned, disgusted, worried at all levels. From children's books that normalize patterns and behaviors that defy God and defy nature, to arts and entertainment that celebrates rebellion against God's standards, to families that are devastated by addiction and so many other vices, to false churches that are driven by a false gospel, to governments that celebrate the slaughter of innocent life. This is what we see daily. Turn the news on. This is the reality today. This is normal. This is what sin does. So many of us have been accustomed to growing up in a culture that has been so positively impacted by the prevailing influence of the church But we are living in this generation where that influence has been diminished. It would seem that we were lulled to sleep. And during our slumber, we allowed the enemy to gain a foothold. It began in our colleges and universities. I went to a Baptist college. And I went to the religion department at a a Baptist college. Heather and I both did. We both have have the same degree from Shorter College. And, And we were there during a time where it wasn't completely committed to biblical truth. And it was a Georgia Baptist school. I went there, I left here, and I went to Shorter to get that degree. And I'll never forget sitting there, and, and I, knew, I knew enough to know that this was truth without any mixture of error. I knew that there was a certain way that, that it applied to life, and, and I knew that, that, that it mattered. And I'll never forget when I was talking to the professors in the religion department about what my plans were for after college. They kept trying to get me to go to McAfee Seminary. And you may say, I know people graduated, went to McAfee, whatever, that's fine. McAfee is not quite as committed to biblical fidelity as as it ought to be as a historic Baptist school. And they kept trying to get us to go to McAfee. They kept wanting people to go to McAfee. And I said, I don't want to go to McAfee. Those people, it's not, as, it's not conservative. They don't, they don't treat the Bible with the authority that it deserves. They don't read the Bible like it's truth without any mixture of error. I don't want to go to McAfee. They kept trying to get us to go to McAfee. I'm glad I went to a school that the Bible was first and foremost. I will say this. I'm a trustee at Shorter now. And Shorter has worked very hard to get itself back to a solid biblical footing. You'd feel very confident about sending your kids there right now based on what I've learned. The riot at Ephesus serves as a warning. It should come as no surprise that our gospel witness will come at a cost. People get saved. People will get rescued from nasty, sinful situations, and we will join with the angels in heaven in rejoicing. But there will always be those who take notice, and the bigger the splash it makes in the pond, the more people who see it. But the encouragement of our Lord is exactly the encouragement that he gave to the disciples on his departure. Behold... I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. If you're looking around at the mixed up, messed up world in which we live, and you're wondering, what happened? 
I wish it were more profound than this, but the answer is as simple as a kid's Sunday school lesson. What happened? Sin. Unfiltered, untouched, unadulterated sin. When you look into the world and you say, what is going on? It's real simple. Sin. Go read Romans chapter 1 and you'll see the Apostle Paul saying they have rejected God as creator and they've gone after idols. Idol of self primarily. But the answer today is the same as it's always been. The answer to the culture's problem, the answer to the community's problem, the answer to the problem at Ephesus, the answer to the problem in Flintstone has always been the church armed with the gospel. Not with our politics, not with our power, not with our prowess, not with our position. The church armed with the gospel is still the world's greatest hope. You look around in this room right now. You see men and women from all walks of life. Let it settle in today that Jesus looks at you gathered together and says, you're the hope of the world. You're the hope of the world. You're the light of the world. You're the city on a hill that can't be hidden. You are. You are. And bodies just like this all over the world today. Don't like what you see in the world? You're in good company. But the answer is Jesus. The answer is the gospel on the lips of the faithful. And here's the thing. The gospel is still your greatest hope too. Whatever you're up against, whatever your challenges are. Because here's the good news of the gospel. The outcome of the gospel is glory. Right? I love Paul says that, that our temporary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, meaning that whatever we go through in this life, it may seem insurmountable in this moment, but it is preparing for us something remarkable, something astonishing, something incredible, something beyond your wildest imagination. There is a promise in heaven for each and every single one of us who are in Christ that makes all of the troubles of this world seem inconsequential. That's your hope. That's your hope. So that's a call to us. There's work to be done. Don't like the world or the circumstances of the world? There's work to be done. And that work is not in our politics. That work is not in our elections. That work is in gospel each and every single day by Christians just like you and just like me. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we're grateful for your word, for the beautiful challenge of scripture for the reminder for the mirror that we see in the word of God we live in a mixed up messed up world but it's no more mixed up or messed up today than it was when Paul was trying to quiet a riot in Ephesus and the solution then is the solution as it is today it's Jesus it's Jesus it's the good news of Jesus preached to a lost and dying generation and so, God, may we recognize our role as those preachers, not in the vocational sense, but in the relational sense. We, as men and women in Christ, with our testimonies and the reality of your deliverance of us from our sin, that's the hope. In order for it to be hopeful, we have to share it. So, God, make us 
faithful men and women to the truth of the gospel and that we will see it radically transform not just our community, not just our neighbors, our workplaces, our classrooms, the places where we do commerce and business. May we be faithful in that, Lord. Because in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.